Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was, and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I had the tremendous opportunity of speaking to Emeritus Professor Kevin Waldle and Dr Robin Waldle. They've achieved so much throughout their careers and were integral to the formation of Multilit a leading provider of effective literacy instruction. It was truly fascinating listening to them describe their journeys and how Multilit came about. They also deliver a wealth of information on how to teach reading effectively. So, get your pen and paper ready because here's my conversation with the Worldles. It's a real honour to be speaking to my two guests today, Emeritus Professor Kevin Waldle and Dr Robin Waldle. Individually, they have both had incredible careers with Kevin serving as Professor and Director of Macquarie University Special Education Centre for over 20 years and currently Emeritus Professor of Macquarie University and Chair and Director of Multilit. While Robin is a Founding Director of Institute of Special Educators, Past President of Learning Difficulties Australia and Current Director of Multilit. Collectively as a team, I don't think any couple has had a bigger impact on Australian education through their programs, research and advocacy. And today, I'm really looking forward to finding out what they have learned throughout their time in education. So firstly, I might just start with you, uh, Kevin. Are you able to just tell us a bit about what you've learned and, and your journey into the position that you're in today? Well, I've, I've been researching in educational psychology and special education for over 50 years. Originally, as you can tell from my accent, I come from the UK, Derby, England. And I began my career at the Hestradian Research Centre in Manchester immediately after graduation. I worked on language sentence comprehension in what we then called mentally handicapped children, kids with intellectual disabilities. When I subsequently moved to Birmingham University, I focused on classroom behavior management and continued work on sentence comprehension. When I moved to Sydney, uh, to Macquarie University in Sydney in 1990, I brought with me my interest in classroom behavior management and also a developing interest in the problems of um, older low progress readers. And began to focus more on the reading area than perhaps on the behavior area. My colleagues and I carried out one of the very first experimental evaluations of reading recovery and were able to point out its limitations. And then this led us to further work in helping older low progress readers. Um, I was particularly interested in using a technique known as pause, prompt and praise, which had been developed in New Zealand by my old friend, Ted Glynn and his colleagues. And I introduced it into uh, Sydney schools. And we had 
some uh, success with uh, helping older low progress readers in this way, often using peer tutors. Following this, we began to, uh, perhaps I should uh, backtrack a little and say that at the special education center, we had a special school, largely for children with learning difficulties rather than intellectual disabilities at that time. And we began to pioneer some techniques, including pause, prompt, and praise, and also extensive use of phonics with older low progress readers. Um, this led to, in 1995, I established what I called the Making Up Lost Time in Literacy Research Initiative, or Multilit. And Robin has been working alongside me on that, all that all that time. So we focus our research interest on demonstrating that older low progress readers could learn to read given appropriate effective instruction. Mm. Um, do you want to take up the story from there? Yes, I think when Kevin came to Australia in 1990 to take up the chair in education and to become the director of the special education center it was I was already working there with some other academics on this will really date me in the period on an integration pro program project so basically taking kids out of special schools and integrating them into less restrictive environments in their regular schools um, and when Kevin arrived in in Sydney I think there was a a, a real opportunity for all that he brought with him to marry the things that had gone on in at MUSEC, the Special Education Centre, since its inception in 1975. It had been quite heavily influenced by the work in Oregon, and so there was a good grounding in things like direct instruction, explicit instruction, and the importance of teaching kids to mastery. And so when Kevin brought his knowledge and experience and coupled it with uh, the folk in the centre, I think it was quite a, a dynamic uh, union, wasn't it? Yes, it's, it's great to find like-minded colleagues. Indeed. In fact, the uh, previous director of the Special Education Centre was actually also an Englishman who knew of Kevin. So I think he, when he tapped Kevin on the shoulder to apply for the job, he knew that it would be a good a good mixing of of ideas from either side of the world. I was kind of headhunted in a way. Yeah. So, but we did start off on the reading side with multi-lit, with, as Kevin said, older low-progress readers. Mm. Uh, so we were really interested in those kids who are getting towards the end of their primary school careers and going into high school without the skills to cope with the curriculum. So that's where we sort of started our work. And it's really been over the years that we've gone down, 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 down in age from our experience of seeing, well, obviously, the earlier you intervene, the better uh, result you'll get. But also the fact that we need to start, even before the school years, to actually lay good foundations for kids uh, to learn to read. Yeah, look, um, can I... I just want to touch on a couple of things that you, you've both spoken about there. In terms of, Kevin, you, you mentioned like when you kind of first started your research that it was at that sentence level of comprehension. Was yes. that was that by accident or by purpose that that's where you kind of started? That's a 
a very good question. I think it was because my my boss at that point, the director of the Hester Adrian Center in Manchester, was interested, had a project on language imitation, language comprehension, language production. And when I was hired as an academic research associate, um, straight from my undergraduate degree, I was set to work on the sentence comprehension, on the language comprehension side. And we continued the development of a test that Peter had been previously working on called the sentence comprehension test. And I, I took on the development of that and looked at various variables that might influence sentence comprehension in both young regular kids and with kids with intellectual disabilities. Yeah, and so from that, what did you, you find that, that kind of then pushed you on the path of, of really digging into what the issues were? I'm not quite sure whether it would be true to say that it was the sentence comprehension work that led to my interest in, in reading. Yes. But certainly, as our reading work developed, I realised that the sentence comprehension test had a role to play in determining those kids starting school who had uh, language problems with language. Mm. And this simple sentence comprehension test, which we turned into a screener, we could uh, isolate the ones who were struggling with language. And if, you get, if you're struggling with language, you're certainly going to struggle to learn to read. Yeah, definitely. And, and Robin, just coming back to you, how did your interest in reading develop? Well, it was really as a result of working with Kevin at the Special Education Centre. Yeah, I, I was working, you know, in more of the disability side initially at Macquarie and then Kevin arrived and there was a lot of focus on reading. And so I became part of the research team and then we increasingly worked. I was actually a tester on the <laughs> research assistant on the reading recovery project. Yeah. So. It, I was testing kids in room cupboards and hot, hot sweaty conditions for little year one kids. It was really awful. <laughs> and so I did a lot of, of testing of, of small children. And then I, I began working more closely with Kevin on the reading side. Yeah. And so the, the question that everyone wants to know, is that is that how uh, you two both met through through working together? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we're a bit of a cliche. Locked up in room cupboards together. <laughs> have to come out. I was in broom covers with children. I know you were. <laughs> yes, we met, we met at the Special Education Centre in Sydney. Yeah, we did. And um, Yeah, cool. In fact, Kevin sometimes tells the story against himself that he was looking for a research assistant and I was I was doing t the testing I've just spoken about out in schools all over Sydney and I got a call from the senior research assistant and she said, look, we're looking for someone to work, <clears throat> excuse me, as Kevin's research assistant, and no one wants to do it. <laughs> she said, would you be prepared to do it? And I said, well, if it means I don't have to drive around Sydney in the heat and test kids in cupboards, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, it began. so it began, yes. But yeah. Kevin also tells a story that um, we were walking down a, a street in Eastwood, which is close to the uni, in 1994, and he said, I've got it. And I said, what? 
And he said, making up lost time in literacy. That's it. Mm. Multi-lit. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, now we just have to work out a program. <laughs> so to go with the name. To go with the name. So he's always been fond mm. of acronyms. So yeah, so it was with Multilit. So yes, that's how we that's how we got together. Awesome. And so you know, I'm sure over the years you would have faced many challenges. You know, like what what's something that you've learnt through overcoming them? Challenges, golly. Perseverance, I think. Keeping your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> Ducking for come. No. No, it was there have been difficulties uh, sometimes over the years because of the lack of popularity of our views in those days. Mm. Um, nowadays, um, it seems like every man and his dog is promoting phonics instruction. But back then, it was uh, extremely unpopular. And I also became unpopular with the Department of Education because of the evaluation of reading recovery that they had commissioned. Mm. And um, before we'd even completed our evaluation, before we'd even written the report, uh, the department had decided to expand its provision of reading recovery. So they were not best pleased when um, I spoke publicly about the limited efficacy of reading recovery and was told off by the department. In fact, something must have um, clicked in my brain when we uh, signed the contract for the evaluation project because I insisted on a clause that said that whilst the report was confidential to the department, um, the researchers were permitted to present their findings to academic conferences and academic journal articles. And I sometimes wonder if, but for that clause, whether we would ever have been allowed to publicize our findings on reading recovery. Mm. The only way the information got out, and so it was very, it was a very crucial thing that there were there were those clauses because otherwise it would have just been very. And it was in the media, and as I say, it made me quite unpopular for a time because I was it was like swearing in church. Mm. I wasn't I wasn't keeping to the party line. Interestingly, the party uh, my my line then seems to have become the party line now. Mm. Uh, interestingly, Jenny Donovan, back in, I think it was 2009 or 2010, mm. contacted um, Kevin to have a meeting. And as people know, she's now the, the CEO of Aero. Yeah. And at that time, I think she was at CC. I think that's when she was at CC. Yeah. Anyway, she Which said... Stands for evaluation and research in education. Statistics and education, yeah. And she said to Kevin, I just had to meet the man who had upset so many of my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she doesn't mind us repeating that story. <laughs> I hope she doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she'll be fine with that. And and so, like, you know, getting through that, were, were you kind of at this stage where 
you just wanted to, I guess, get the, the truth out there about, you know, what effective reading looks like and what it is and how to teach it. And so you didn't, you weren't really too concerned with other people's opinions or, or did it kind of, you know, push you, push you a little bit in, in how you were approaching your work at the time? No, I've, I've never been too concerned about uh, other people's opinions in that sense. Yeah. My background is in behavioral psychology and in particular applied behavior analysis, which mm-hmm. was not the, by no means the flavor of the month in those days. I think it had hampered my career in the UK. So as I said earlier, it was nice to go to the special education center and found, find people who thought along broadly similar lines to me. Mm. And we had very supportive colleagues yep. at music. So even though, and there were some really difficult times actually when, you know, sometimes journos having a real go or yeah, being sort of deemed as on the wrong side of the argument. But we had a very strong collegial group at MUSEC and actually that still maintains and And it has to be said that we learned a great deal from them yeah it was by no means a one-way traffic of this Mm. guy from the UK coming in and solving the problems far from it it was very much a collaborative enterprise Mm. and I'd like to uh, give credit in particular uh, to my colleagues uh, former colleagues Coral Kemp Mark Carter, Alison Madeline, all of whom had um, major influence on my thinking and worked with me on research. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And and I guess just moving into current times, and and you you briefly touched on multilit earlier and how it was established. But for those that aren't as familiar with what you know multi-lit is are you able to just give a bit of an overview as to you know what it is what's a part of it and I guess what the general goals of it are yes well multi-lit uh basically had at its core at the beginning and still does researching the most effective ways to ensure that all children learn to read and so we had this venture at Macquarie where we worked with community organisations to implement on-site tutorial centres, teaching kids who were behind. So we had a, we certainly had a sort of a service provision side where we saw kids who were struggling readers and we would teach them with teams of instructors who were trained in our approach. We also established a clinical facility so students were able to come to our clinic at the university. We thought the best way to get changes in, you know, kids' skills out there was to provide teachers, though, with the, with the materials and the skills they needed to help kids learn to read. So mm-hmm. our first um, program that we developed was called the multi Reading Tutor Program, and we packaged it up so that other people could use our resources and particularly in schools. And that started us on a trajectory of publishing programs. Now, these days, Multilit is probably known for various the various programs that it has in its suite of, of programs. Yeah. Um, it all started out with the Reading Tutor program, and then we developed Minilit, which was, in a sense, our response to the lack of change in reading recovery. 
um, we thought, you know, someone's going to change early recovery to make it more effective. It didn't happen. So in the end, we set about starting to do that ourselves. Yeah, um, it should be emphasized that the Reading Tutor Program is a one-to-one -one program, one adult to one child. And that's how, uh, that's what our focus was. Yeah. Um, and then as Robin uh, said, sort of waited for Reading Recovery to catch up. Um, I always like to say that Reading Recovery had many fine attributes. It was like a lovely, shiny, um, posh-looking car. The problem was its engine didn't, and it needed a phonics engine. And we thought, well, in time, the research is bound to make the people behind Reading Recovery improve that engine. And yeah. they didn't. So we decided, well, we'll, we'll set up, we'll devise a program for young struggling readers, exactly the same uh, catchment, if you like, as uh, Reading Recovery was intended for. And that we would, um, we would do this with small groups of young children. Mm. And that, so mini lit, it, it, we, we, as I say, I was interested in older low progress readers. Uh, yeah. It's only because there was no progress being made on the young struggling reader front that we uh, launched into mini lit. Yes. And then when we, we sort of have worked backwards uh, in a response to intervention model. So we yeah. sort of started out on the one-to-one -one, and then we went to small group because one of the problems with reading recovery was that it was very expensive because it was one-to-one. -one. And yeah. so we researched and, and were also absorbing the, the research that was the ambient research about small group instruction for kids who were struggling, how it could yeah. be effective. So we went to that tier two small group instruction for Minilit. Yeah. And over the years, our frustration was that the kids who were struggling in Minilit were getting the right sort of instruction, but they were being returned to classrooms where the instruction was quite different. Mm. And that's why we eventually decided to go into whole class tier one instruction with Initialit. So yeah. right from the beginning of the first day of, of school for kids in foundation, our, our hope and goal is that they will get this evidence-based whole class instruction and there will be fewer kids needing to go into tier two and to tier three phases because if we get the instruction right in the first place, we are going to stop a lot of instructional casualties. So our goal is to basically, our goal has always been to make ourselves redundant. Yeah. Uh, we we would like to be in a world where there is no need for kids to have to go into higher, higher intensity of instruction to, to keep with their cohort. Obviously, there will always be some children who need that, but we want to see far fewer than has been historically the case. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry, Ben, to go back, what, bit, what is Multilit today? Well, Multilit today, uh, the university felt that it was getting too big for them to handle within the university. So it was spun off in 2006 as a separate entity. And it has pretty much the same goals. We develop programs and resources for teachers to use. We train teachers in the use of those programs. I think this last uh, year we've trained over 8,000 teachers in the year to use mm -hmm. programs. 
and we uh, still have our literacy centres. We call them literacy centres now rather than clinics. And we have students coming into those uh, as well. And we have our multi-research unit, which is where Kevin and I spend most of our time, um, basically trialling and establishing the efficacy of our programs in development. It takes years and years to develop a multi-program because yeah. of the, the trialling and the refining that goes on. We want them to work in the real world and we want them to be as effective as possible. So we have a great team of colleagues in our multi-research unit and we also work very closely with our very talented program developers, product developers in multi-lit and that sort of takes a lot of the energy in, in multi-lit. Have I, have I forgotten anything? No, I don't think so. I, but I'm glad that you emphasised the product development team are devoted uh, team of quite literally program developers who write the instructions in, in the programs. And they're led by Alison McMurtry, uh, who has been with us a very long time now and is um, an expert in, in the area in her own right. Mm. Yeah. And and so I guess like you've kind of touched on a couple of things which, which probably uh, address this question, but I'm, I'm going to still ask it. Um, why why should schools and, and teachers and school leaders, why should they choose to use the multi-lit programs over other ones which are available? Here you go. <laughs> you go. Yeah. Well, we, I would not want to poor mouth other programs which seem to be effective, but there is very little empirical evidence for efficacy of other programs. Whereas at Multilit, because we come from a university research centre and we've continued that tradition, uh, we have insisted on empirical uh, evidence, empirical evidence for efficacy of our programme. So in other words, we can prove uh, that kids uh, learn to read better as a result of our programmes. And that's the key thing. It's been a scientific evidence-based approach. It's been based on the scientific evidence of uh, others working worldwide. We've absorbed all of that. And the scientific evidence we've generated ourselves on the efficacy of the methods we use. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess moving on to your recently released book, Effective Instruction in Reading and Spelling. You guys releasing that gave me a really great excuse to contact you to, to have a chat with both of you. And it's an awesome book. I highly recommend it for not just teachers, but you know people who are going through initial teacher education. And it basically addresses everything that you need to know when it comes to reading and spelling. And you know, is, was that kind of the goal of, of publishing the book? Yeah, the idea was that we wanted to disseminate the central ideas behind effective reading and spelling instruction to the folk out there. It seemed to us that a lot of the education textbooks on reading had very little to say about the science of reading. The, what has been found over the last 40 years as a result of careful uh, experimentation by cognitive psychologists, linguists, speech pathologists, educational psychologists, special educators, and so on. And we wanted to put all of that together into a textbook so that people could find everything 
they needed to know in one place mm. that would give a different perspective to most of the other textbooks on the market. Yes, it's like a, we hope it's like a one-stop shop, Brendan. And thank you very much for your kind words about the textbook. Uh, it is the, um, the work of very, very many talented people from both mm. within our own team and from other uh, academics and researchers in Australia and overseas. We've been very fortunate to be able to pull all of that content together. And uh, we were encouraged to uh, put it into a textbook format because um, a few years ago, Jennifer Buckingham, as part of her shortchanged report and review process into initial teacher education courses in Australia, had looked at the textbooks that were available. Mm. Very few of them, to her mind, passed muster. So we had always wanted to put something together in a, a, a sort of a course to actually cover up all of the areas of, of reading and spelling that, that you need to know. Um, but this lack of a coherent textbook covering it all, as you've said, was a real impetus for us embarking on the project. So, and of course, now we've got the book. So the course is developed alongside that as well. But that's that's for a bit further down the track. Yeah, right. And and like one of the things that I've, I found really I guess effective in, in what you had to offer through the book was um, how practical it was at, at the same time. You know, sometimes we can have books like that which go a little bit too academic um, for you know time poor teachers uh, to engage with, and and even just um, you know people who are going through initial teacher education who you know are still beginning in, in their understanding. I think having having that practicality practicality to it allows teachers to, to I guess see all right well what's in it for me what do I actually need to do because that's you know, the questions that I'll get a lot of the times is all right, after they've engaged with some sort of professional learning or reading they then want to know what what exactly does this mean for me in the classroom and I, I think you've you've been able to address that really well. That's, that's thank you. fantastic and, and thank you for that comment I was listening to um, Mark Seidenberg talk um, a while back that's not, not so long ago about the fact that we've got this huge body of science around reading and the processes and he said what we are missing is how that lands in the classroom well mm. I'm hoping that we've you know gone some way to doing that with this book yeah okay and so look let's get into some of the nitty-gritty of, of what you've addressed in the book but also just from I guess your understanding of, of some of the things that teachers need to, to know about. So the first thing I'd like to just have a chat about is what do teachers need to know about how children learn to read and how does it evolve over time? Right, well, uh, I'll start if you like, yeah. Kevin. Given that English is an alphabetic language and it's a complex alphabetic language, we kids need to know how the sounds in the language correspond to the marks on the page, the letters, the graphemes that represent the sounds. They need to have a very clear understanding of that link between the sound and the letter or letters. They need to know that. That's got to be a basis for kids learning to read because reading is lifting words off the page. But as we know, it's not just about that, it's about the other areas that are often you know, called the five big ideas. Uh, phonemic awareness, fluency in reading is very important, comprehension, how to actually get meaning from what they're reading, and uh, vocabulary. And phonics. And phonics. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we need to make sure that 
we're not just teaching things in isolation. We have to wrap those things together all the way through, particularly in the early years. We need to get that basic code, the phonic code, well established for kids. And we think that really needs to happen between the first year of school and, you know, certainly by the end of the second of, of year two, uh, we would be expecting kids to have a very solid grasp of that if they're going to be uh, continuing as successful readers. But of course, early on, we also have to not only do the decoding, but the encoding with the spelling, the writing, the learning, learning more complex vocabulary, uh, reading and extracting meaning um, from what they're reading. And they need to actually have all of these things happening from the day, from day one. And that's uh, absolutely right. And also, we need kids to have a good, have good language mm -hmm. and um, the beginnings of understanding of um, how uh, words are made up of, of discrete, not discrete, but sounds. And so we developed a program called Prelit, which is for kids in uh, daycare centers and nursery schools, preschool establishments and focuses on language development, including phonemic awareness, so that by the time the kids come to school, they're really well prepared to learn to read. Mm. And you did ask how changes evolves over time. As I said, uh, we would hope that kids have been taught the code and the extended code by the end of year two. And then the, the emphasis can shift more into the uh, bit more work around the spelling, morphology, etymology. So this helps them with their understanding of, the, of words, novel words that they may see in text. We need to get kids doing a lot of reading practice so that the more they read, the bigger their vocabularies shall become, they'll become more proficient, their general knowledge will grow. So we have to really spend time on getting kids reading a lot. And also we can spend more time on the writing and the comprehension. The higher, the higher order skills can take more of the time in the timetable rather than having to focus so much on the phonic code, which we hope has developed well by the end of year two. Yeah. And so what's the most effective way of delivering that instruction? Well, we, <laughs> we believe, uh, unsurprisingly, that the most effective way to do this is via explicit instruction. So teacher-led, sequenced, small steps, mastery of learning, making sure kids have actually got this consolidated before you move on, going back to review stuff that they've already learned, so having cumulative reviews of their knowledge, and basically you know, the I do, we do, you do model of the teacher modeling, the, the practice together, and then the independent practice, the guided practice, then ind independent practice. And this is a very, very effective teaching cycle so that we believe that these core skills are best taught explicitly so that things aren't left out, they're not left to chance. And in terms of phonics we believe that the best way to teach phonic is through a systematic synthetic phonics approach so basically a finely ordered sequence of phonic skills are taught it's actually deliberate it's not incidental 
and mm. it's actually um, monitored as students progress through the code that kids have actually got it and, and experienced teachers will you know have a good handle on where kids are in their class who's got who's got it who's got it quickly who may, may need a few more repetitions we know that some kids need more repetition of material before it's before it's grasped and then consolidated so we have to be very mindful of of how those things are being inquired across a group of kids which is actually a very difficult thing to do and teachers are very skilled when they do that sort of thing so I think as far as phonics goes we will definitely support us we do support a synthetic phonics approach um, but explicit instruction should be actually at the core of all of the basic knowledge building and um unashamedly we be our programs are scripted so that um we have a very careful sequence of how um for example phonics is taught and the uh, we provide the scripts for what teachers need to say and do at any time during the uh, the lesson um, we think it's crazy to expect uh, individual teachers to invent um, the stuff over and over again for for themselves uh, when we can develop research and develop programs which have proven efficacy which takes a huge load of teachers and allows them to be much more creative in their other endeavors. Mm. Yeah. yeah, one of the things I've, I've kind of um, likened to when, when we're talking about scripts is how, you know, when we've got actors and actresses, you know, rehearsing for movies, they're, they're reading from a script. They're not just coming up with it on, on the spot because that script allows them to then add in their creativity. It's not a matter of them trying to come up with everything all at once. And, and in, as teachers, it's even harder for us because we have to do it in front of a live audience. Yes. You know, and, and we've got to be responsive to what, what information they're giving us. So, you know, when you're speaking about that load, you know, there's so much going on for a teacher. If we can just take off part of that, especially as they're, they're learning, you know, something new, which is if, if they haven't been trained and, and I guess the, the research is telling us that there's a pretty good chance that they haven't been trained properly in how to teach reading. This is just another way to kind of scaffold that support, you know, as they kind of do develop their own skills in understanding how to teach reading. Are there ways that they can start to move away from the scripts or, you know, how, how can they add, I guess, you know, what are the key mechanisms to using those sorts of scripts? Well, I like your analogy about actors working from scripts. And sure, they have the actions they have to perform, the words that they are supposed to say, but different actors obviously interpret those scripts in different ways. We don't expect exactly the same performance from every, um, from every actor. Think mm -hmm. of the uh, number of different interpretations of Hamlet, for example. Um, there it is, it's all written down there, but the interpretation of it by different actors over many, many years has given many, many different interpretations. Mm. And we firmly believe that teachers can, and indeed should, inject their personalities into um, the, the script, which gives them the bare bones 
of, uh, of what to say and do at any given time. It keeps them on track. But at the end of the day, uh, it's the teacher teaching that is mm. the thing. That's right. And we've, um, we hear that when observing different teachers teaching initially, for instance, that even though they're following the script, what it looks like in the classroom can be quite, it's quite different that people mm. do have their own way of delivering their own, as Kevin said, uh, having their personality come through, notwithstanding the fact that it's a standardised approach. And that's great because it means that people can actually sort of take it and make it their own. Having said that, the agony that goes into producing every one of those lessons from our end, there's so much thought and trialling and deliberation over what's in every lesson that we're keen for people to, to teach that because yeah, keep to, the script. to keep to the script because in that way the material is being covered. But, mm. of course, within the classroom, as you've said, teachers are responding all the time. They've got some kids over here who won't be getting it quite so quickly and so the teacher has to differentiate in the classroom to make sure all those kids needs are met so there may be additional bits for those kids who need more and then the kids who have actually got it more quickly may not have so much focused work in say in the group rotations they can do something that extends them rather than actually that, you know, keeps the, the basic work building blocks being built. So there has to be that differentiation across the class. That's part of the response to intervention model that mm. you differentiate at that class level. And that's where we want teachers to do that, even though they're using a scripted approach. Yeah. And, and so the other kind of aspect to, to teaching that, that both of you have done a lot of work on is like the positive behavior approach and i like the the five principles that you spoke about in in the book are you able to just explain what they are and, and go through them and what it means for teachers well you're the positive teacher guru <laughs> i was just about to say it um look in essence it's the old that old song about accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative well, we don't advocate eliminating the negative completely, but we have, we think reprimands should be used sparingly and effectively when they are used and that the vast majority of comments should be uh, praise statements focusing on what kids have done that's right. So it's really in some respects a little more than that but perhaps something that is often missed is when teachers have got the idea of praise and and the consequences they perhaps forget that what we call the antecedents for behavior are equally as important and of course uh, that thinking led to uh, my earlier work on classroom seating arrangements where we we believe we showed without a shadow of a doubt that if you want children to be on task engaged in an activity um, that requires their individual attention then seating in rows is preferable to seating in groups 
if you want kids to have a discussion about something, of course, they should be in groups. But just think about it. If we have something important we have to write, uh, like a, a grant application or a love letter or, or whatever, we don't go and find a table with all our best mates there and <laughs> try and write it whilst we're joshing with them. We sit in a focused way. Yeah. With, that minimizes distraction. So the... The ABC of positive teaching is get your antecedents right, and that includes the right sort of materials, heating, lighting, seating, all of those sorts of things. Focus on the behavior, the, what you can observe that the kids are doing rather than speculating about motives to focus on the actual behavior per se. What, what is the problem? The kid keeps calling out. It's a calling out that you want to, to deal with. And then, of course, finally, contingent consequences that you look for instances of appropriate behavior and reinforce that with, with praise. And when you do use reprimands, we found that it's far more effective to, for the teacher to go move closer to the child, to speak quietly, and point out that what they're doing is uh, undesirable, rather than yelling it from the other side of the classroom. Yeah. Yes, I think um, the, the fact that um, one has to observe what's going on, the only way, as Kevin said, you can't speculate as to why, mm. but when you observe, you actually have to sort of just be able to describe in terms of the behaviour what the child is doing. Uh, yeah. Rather than saying, oh, you know, Jason is hyperactive. It's like well, Jason keeps getting up and down out of his seat and moving to other parts of the classroom. So in, in sort of getting that in behavioural terms, you then know what you actually have to try and uh, sort of fix, if you like. And we do know that a lot of these behaviours are learned and we do know that we can change behaviour by um, providing alternative behaviours and by manipulating the, the um, as Kevin said, the antecedents or the conditions under which things are happening in the classroom. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things teachers can do to help students learn appropriate classroom behaviour. And particularly where teacher attention goes is a very powerful force. So if teacher attention is always going to a negative behaviour, that can actually the unintentionally reinforcing of the negative behavior whereas if teachers focus on appropriate classroom behavior and and acknowledge that in a specific way kids say oh that's what I'm meant to be doing like that's what I, that's what I have to do to, to be acknowledged so teacher attention is a very powerful tool that can be used to help shape good classroom behavior and the key thing and um, to remember is this applies to social behavior in the classroom, what kids are actually doing, as well as academic behavior. I think on the whole, teachers are very good at praising academic achievement and work. And our research from observing teachers in classrooms has shown that teachers use a very large number of praise statements for academic work. Yeah. For 
classroom behavior, non-work related behavior, they hardly ever comment in a positive way. In fact, they use a lot of reprimands complaining about the way that children are behaving. And we have shown that if you pull down those reprimands, just using those quiet um, reprimands very occasionally, and beef up the uh, praise statements to appropriate social behavior, that you can bring about great increases in the class overall on task behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all about that, you know, praise in public and reprimand in private, isn't it? And and just making sure that, you know, what what we're kind of promoting to the class are the things that we want to see rather yes. than what we, we generally do as teachers is we, as you, as you touched on, you know, we, we tend to highlight the things that we don't want to be seeing. And mm. yeah, so it's kind of just flipping that. You know, in Australia, we're kind of just past the halfway mark of the year in the academic year. And for teachers out there that are kind of looking to kind of hit that reset button, what sort of tips do you have for them there? Is it too late or, or can they still do it? Never too late, never too late. It's always great to, uh, in a sense, have a review of mutually agreed classroom rules. So basically classroom rules are a great way of actually doing that reset and discussion with students about, okay, what sort of classroom do we want to have? Having those very few, not a long list, a very few, maybe three or four positively phrased classroom rules that is going to promote harmony and respectful uh, interactions between students with each other and students with their teacher and teachers with their students and basically set that tone of what we want our classroom to look like. Again, it has to be in observable terms. So it can't be we respect each other okay, what do we do to show respect for, for each other? We mm. don't interrupt each other when we're speaking. So rather than having it, we don't interrupt. It's We turn that into a positive statement. We, we wait for our turn to speak. So basically, if we're having positively phrased, very small set of rules, mm. that then the teacher can praise specifically about rule-keeping behaviour, remind, remind students what, the classroom rules are and basically those things shouldn't stay set in stone they should be quite dynamic because once you've started bringing say for instance calling out behavior once you've brought calling out behavior under control you then replace that classroom rule which might have been we put up our hand to speak or we wait our turn to speak with something else that's been this troublesome so yeah. you you actually then target another behaviour, and yep. really that happening that happening every term is a is is a good idea. Even you know every few weeks because yep. it's actually a moving it's a moving target. It's it's not at the beginning of the year. This is what we do. So it's yeah. not, definitely not too late. And the other thing is teachers can actually, if they want to reduce their reprimands and increase their specific and contingent praise statements, they can even record themselves. You know, they can just hit record on their phone and record for half an hour and see the sort of ratio they've got between any reprimand or any disapproval and approval. And if they're getting to around that, you know, three, four, five times more positive statements than negative, that's yeah. going to be a much more conducive environment because if it's one negative for one positive, we as humans, if we hear one negative statement and one positive, 
what do we take away? We'll take away the negative. Yeah, yeah, so it's it a really to, good point. It needs to be in abundance. And of course, as you're starting to get the any troublesome behaviours under control, you fade out that praise. You don't just keep praising it at a high level. You have to you have to fade the praise because we know that intermittent reinforcement is a very full, very powerful way of continuing a behaviour. So we teachers have to be very skilled at actually managing what they're focusing on. Yeah. Now. I, I could have asked you a thousand questions today because there's so much that we could talk about, but I do want to have a bit of a focus on phonics next and, and take a bit of a deep dive into, you know, what it is and, and what teachers need to know about it. So just starting off with, you know, what, what is phonics and why is it essential in learning to read? Okay. So in English, we have 26 letters of our alphabet. We have approximately 44 phonemes or sounds in the language. And what teachers need to be able to teach is communicating to kids how those sounds in the language in the spoken language translate to the letters on the page mm. so that is the basis of phonics it's basically getting the match between the sound and the single letter or groups of letters that are the grapheme then we have to actually teach kids how to put those things together so we have to teach them to blend the sounds so they need to be able to actually see a word on the page and identify the sounds and blend them together to make the word now there's not always a you know as people say English is a very complex language and it is but the more letter sound correspondences we teach we can get kids into reading text relatively quickly so rather than teaching every possible combination, we have to teach the most frequently occurring one so that yeah. that doesn't get too confusing. So we have to start with a few letters and sounds and we build them up as quickly as possible to make some words that we can then put together in some connected text. So kids get the idea that they're not just looking at letters for the sake of it, they're actually looking at words that actually are part of a string of words that have a meaning. So we have to actually develop those skills. We have to make sure that we go from simple to complex in the, in the teaching of the code. But we don't want to, you know, do it to death. So I think Johnny Solity is a, Jonathan Solity is a colleague of ours out of the UK. He, his approach is that you only have to teach around 60 graphene, phoneme correspondences and 58 irregular or tricky words for kids to access 75% of books, words in books. Yeah. To add. I just want to add um, something that is still surprisingly common is that critics of uh, the phonics approach um, or those who have their doubts think that phonics is a method of reading. It isn't. It's a method of teaching reading. Mm. Um, when kids learn phonics, they don't decode the, each letter in each word every time they come across it. It's a means, it's a self-teaching mechanism for learning whole words. So have C-A-T, C-A-T, it becomes cat. Well, they don't sound that out every time uh, they um, come across that word. 
Uh, by the time they've sounded it out a few times, it becomes um, embedded as a whole word in their visual lexicon. Um, and I, I just want to emphasize that point that phonics is not about how you read, it's about how you learn to read. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, and of course, <clears throat> Linnea Aries' work on orthographic mapping, you know, takes that. It's it's just a, a, a stage, as a phase. You don't actually yeah. have to be doing this forever. And the more students actually read, the more the, the more repetitions of those letter combinations in words, it becomes embedded with the meaning and the spelling. And those things working together is what sort of creates the reading brain. Yeah. And so what can this look like for a classroom teacher? So that tier one instruction. Mm. Well, initially it's got to be, um, you know, pretty much teacher-led. Uh, in, a, in a classroom um, timetable, we'd expect uh, there to be about, you know, 30 to 40 minutes of kids uh, on the mat getting direct instruction uh, in whatever the sounds are that are being taught with a lot of responding from students. So it's not teacher-led and just kids are passive. They're actually engaging with in the lessons. So basically a lot of choral responding, a lot of individual responding, and the teacher will go through in our, what we recommend obviously is going through a carefully scripted lesson to actually teach those skills. Um, so I think, not doing too much at once, yep. a few, few sounds per week, um, not, not sort of making sure that the kids have actually got it before they move on. Uh, so, and lots of opportunities for practice. Um, we think that in the first, well, you know, two hours a day really um, should be spent in those early years on the phonics and phonemic awareness side um, and probably half an hour of writing within those two hours, but a lot of emphasis on um, decoding and encoding. So doing the spelling aspects as well. Um, yep. So it's a fair slab of time that people should actually be dedicating to it every, you know, every day. I'm finding room for vocabulary work yep. and reading comprehension too. And it should be integrated into those. So all activities. of those five big ideas need to be focused on right from the word go. <clears throat> yep, and so I guess there's a couple of questions that, that teachers always have around, you know, um, what does it, what sort of thing should they be looking for when, when they're uh, trying to pick a phonics program that is systematic and, and synthetic? And, and what are some things that, um, yeah, kind of uh, necessities? Well, obviously besides just going with uh, multi-lit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, uh, as we've said, you know, having a, a, a good sequence, there's, and there's not just one sequence, there's many sequences, um, but basically that a sequence is comprehensive so that it does start from the simple, moving to the more complex, that um, the sounds being taught are visually and auditorily uh, discrete from each other in those early stages, so there's less opportunity for confusion. Yeah. Um, so they should be looking at uh, structure uh, with plenty of opportunities for that. Uh, I do, we do, you do explicit instruction approach. Yeah. So basically they should 
also be looking for cumulative reviews, going, making sure assessments are happening throughout so that they know all the kids have got it. So it's just not a teach and hope sort of scenario that you're actually monitoring students' progress through, through that. And that for those kids who are not, um, you know, keeping up, basically adding more instruction back in for those kids. Uh, so it's very important to get that sense of, are you keeping people moving together? And if you're not, you've got to do a bit more work with those kids and that who may form a little group within your classroom to actually provide more exposure to those lesson, lesson components. Yeah, and you're kind of touching a bit on um, assessments there, but you know, for schools moving away from PM benchmarking, they can find it difficult to know like what assessments to use. What advice would you have for them there? Well, we are strong advocates of what's known as curriculum-based measurements, uh, <clears throat> which are fluency measures. Now, you can use curriculum-based measurement in uh, several academic areas, but most of the work has been done in the area of reading. And it's basically a, a measure of oral reading fluency. Now, this can take uh, several forms. It might be uh, lists of words. Uh, for example, our Weldall assessment of reading lists uh, is, is, uh, is an example of this. And also the Weldall assessment of reading performance, which is continuous text. And children read for one minute. And the number of words that they read correctly is the index of their proficiency. Now, I have to say that when I first heard this over 30, well over 30 years ago now, um, I didn't believe it. I thought, well, how could such a crude measure as how many words a child can read in a minute be a, an effective measure of reading? But in fact, the words read correctly per minute correlates very, very highly with more complicated measures of both reading accuracy and reading comprehension. And so we advocate uh, and have devised tests uh, for teachers to use based on curriculum-based measurement, uh, oral reading fluency. Uh, and we think the beauty of that is that you can give similar lists or similar passages on a weekly or twice weekly basis, and you can graph the number of words read correctly and see progress um, on the graph as the weeks go by. And that assessment part is, you know, very important uh, in just making, in, in, in when you said what should people look for in a phonics program. Um, yeah. Having that assessment built in is very important because you've got to know that what you're teaching is landing and, and being retained, being mastered. And yeah. so um, there should there should be that assessment element within the program. And it should not just do what immediately has been taught, but go back and do a cumulative review because you've actually, in a good phonics program, you've you've moved in small steps, but at a good pace. So you don't want to get sort of bogged down in teaching the same letter sound for two or three a week. 
basically you've got to take enough time but not so much time that the kids become disengaged and they stop learning. And likewise, the pace within the lesson has to be actually good to keep kids engaged. And for kids who appear to be uh, not progressing as well, that monitoring should be stepped up. So that should be being done every other week, every every fortnight. And some of the ways you can do that is via, you know, parallel passages of curriculum-based measurement. Um, So it's some of the standardised tests you can't do frequently and they're they're not necessarily sensitive either. So you've got to have something that's sensitive to growth um and teachers have you know have to sort of make sure they make can make time to make that happen which we know is, is difficult but it's very worth, worthwhile doing yeah and and you've kind of um touched on this a bit there as well when you're looking at that response to intervention model and uh i think a lot of schools they're, they're kind of a lot of times they, they will go to a structured program, you know, like um, what you, you have to offer through uh, multi-lit and have that on offer for their intervention, but then not always have um, the tier one instruction going as strongly as, as, as it could be. What what other like bits of advice do you have for, for schools that are um, looking to incorporate more of a response to intervention model? Well, I think a, you know, a whole school approach is actually very important. Um, I think getting across the the science of reading, the ideas of the science of reading, that everyone's on the same page, I think is critically important. And that basically people know what's going to happen uh, from year to year for kids, where they expect them to get in their learning so that they can know that the things have been covered off. And so I think that sharing of assessment um, and progress monitoring data is really important. I think that understanding that basically the student going back into a tier one whole class situation shouldn't be confronted with different methods than getting in the tier two, that's very confusing for kids. So there's gotta be a continuity of approach and we've gotta know when kids should go out of that whole class into a more supportive, a more uh, a smaller more intensive uh, situation in tier two and then when tier two may not be meeting their needs when you actually move to tier three and what that might look like so um and likewise the other way when when can students move out of tier two and come back into just tier one because they should always be getting the tier one instruction irrespective of whether they're getting tier two, it should be a double dose, not an either or situation. So yeah. um, I think that the, the an understanding across the school of what kids uh, are being taught in tier one and tier two is actually critically important to make it a bit seamless, more seamless. Yeah. And look, as we begin to uh, wrap up today's conversation, what are, what are your thoughts and feelings on the current state of school-based education and initial teacher education in Australia? Um, we are among those who are critical of um, the approach to, uh, I won't, I'm not afraid to use the word, training teachers um, to be effective educators. Um, we, we think that when we moved from the old colleges of education to become university departments of education, 
the teacher training curriculum became overly academicized and neglected the practical skills of teaching in favor of uh, more sociological perspectives on uh, power structures and uh, uh, how, how um, schools should operate to develop the whole child, which is of course a good thing, but not at the expense of training in actual skills and knowledge needed to be able to operate effectively in the classroom. Courses have become too academic, too sociological, and have neglected uh, the practical aspects of teaching. Mm. In terms of uh, school-based education, look, I think um, we are greatly encouraged by the changes that we've seen over the course of our careers. Um, and it can feel like it takes a long time for things to change, but they're definitely changing. So there is a real thirst amongst teachers for, you know, movements like sharing best practice, think forward educators, um, research ed. There's, there's a, a great deal of commitment um, and hunger for more information. And so that's very encouraging. And it must be said also dissatisfaction uh, with what they received mm. during their university course mm. and um, genuine grievance yeah. that they've had to learn about um, all of this uh, material about effective teaching, effective instruction mm. after they've graduated and they're in schools. They've had to go and find it out for themselves, often yeah. at their own expense, mm. uh, having paid mm. for um, a teaching degree, which hasn't prepared them for teaching. Yeah. Uh, but we do feel, you know, we, we feel encouraged because there are so many schools that are embracing evidence-based uh, practice and the science of learning and the science of reading. Um, it's a movement and, you know, yeah. good people like yourself are, you know, doing things to spread the word. And so we wouldn't have seen this, you know, even 10 years ago. We think there's been a great shift in the last, you know, five to eight years. Um, so we're encouraged and um, very, you know, th things are moving in the right direction. And the recent uh, report, help me out here, what was it called? The Teacher Education, the teacher education Review, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, certainly seems to be showing a, a determination to get uh, initial teacher education right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and look, just um, lastly, the last question I've got for you is, this is called the, the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. So do you have any other last bits of knowledge or resources or final words um, for, for teachers out there? Well, I think that um, just to encourage teachers to take advantage of the fantastic opportunities for professional learning uh, podcasts like this one and, and other podcasts from you know, this country and uh, overseas. The Five from Five uh, website provides great information for teachers wanting to know more. Um, we also have, I don't know whether people are aware, but, but we publish a twice yearly digital magazine called Nomanus, uh, which is basically a curated collection of 
great stuff from other people and sometimes from our own. But Nomana's is freely available and can be subscribed to. And I just would encourage people to continue their all this the, the journey with all of these various movements that we see. It's um it's fantastic. And we we think that you know we all should keep going. And uh, just to answer a, a question we get asked a lot is why is it called Nomanus? Well, it's actually no man is. No man <laughs> an island entire of itself, John Donne's famous uh, poem. And the idea is it's, it's to emphasize the interconnectedness of us all. Hmm. So hence no minus. Yeah. Awesome. I just want to congratulate you both on the amazing careers that you've had and, and thank you for the huge contribution that you've made to Australian education. I really enjoyed today's conversation and uh, yeah, look forward to, to meeting in person sometime. That'd be wonderful. Thanks Love so much, Brendan. Thank you, Brendan. Take care. I had a lot of fun speaking with Kevin and Robin, and despite their outstanding achievements, they are still incredibly humble. Since the recording, I was also lucky enough to actually meet them in person recently at the book launch for effective instruction in reading and spelling, and listening to the other presenters, it was clear as to how highly regarded they are by their colleagues. So, here are my key takeaways. I found it really interesting how they actually thought that reading recovery would eventually catch onto the evidence and change their programs, and so they only ever planned to develop Multilute as an intensive one-on-one -on -one tutor program. They also highlighted how we need to get kids reading a lot so that their background knowledge and vocabulary become more proficient. It's not just about the phonics. They touched on the importance of preschools focusing on oral language and phonemic awareness to ensure that they are well prepared to learn to read. They have spent hours and hours putting scripted programs together, and they think it's crazy that we expect teachers to do the same. Kevin built on my actors analogy when talking about the use of scripts and how, like actors, teachers are still encouraged to give their own interpretation of the script. For behaviour management, we need to make a deliberate effort to accentuate the positive comments and sparingly use reprimands. We need to get the antecedents right, like materials, room temperature, lighting and seating. You only have to teach 60 grapheme phoneme correspondences and 58 irregular words for kids to access 75% of books. Phonics is not a method for reading, it's a method for teaching reading. We also have to teach children how to blend the sounds together. The self-teaching mechanism means that by learning phonics, kids eventually don't have to sound out each letter in every word, it becomes embedded in their visual lexicon. When trying to decide if a commercial phonics program is systematic and syn synthetic, we need to look at whether or not the sequence moves from simple to more complex and are similar sounds discrete from each other. Does it demonstrate an explicit approach of I do, we do, you do? We need continuity in instruction approaches in a response to intervention model. If you want to know more about effective reading instruction, I highly recommend you go back and listen to some of the previous episodes, such as episode 2 with Stephanie Levere on implementing structured literacy across the school, or episode 3 with Lynn Stone on misconceptions about teaching literacy and how we should actually teach it, or the previous episode, episode 17, with Christopher Such on the art and science of teaching reading fluency. Next up, we take a break from the literacy world and dive back into mathematics, an area that I've personally invested a lot of learning and time into, and I'm really excited to share my next episode with you, because it's with the amazing David Morkunis, 
someone who has developed a bit of an edgy celebrity status here in Australia because of his now famous daily review videos. If you haven't seen them yet, I highly recommend that you give them a watch. So make sure you hit that subscribe button to ensure that you don't miss out. But that's it from me for today. And as always, stay curious, keep learning and teach with purpose. Bye for now.